From the Partnership for Public Service, you're listening to Transition Lab, a behind-the-scenes look at presidential transitions. I'm David Marchick. Today on Transition Lab, we have two individuals who have had amazing careers in the foreign policy and defense space. Ambassador Nina Hachigian served as U.S. Ambassador to the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN, during the Obama administration. She's currently serving as the first deputy mayor for international affairs in the city of Los Angeles. Jamie Jones Miller served in the Defense Department in the Trump administration, including his time as principal deputy assistant secretary of defense for legislative affairs. That's a long title, but it's a very important position. She also served for many years on Capitol Hill, including as a chief of staff and legislative director for members of Congress. We're releasing this podcast almost exactly 100 years after the state of Tennessee became the 36th state to ratify the 19th Amendment. Tennessee became the state to clear the two-thirds of the states required to ratify the amendment to the Constitution, securing women's right to vote. You may be asking what the 19th Amendment has to do with presidential transitions. Well, Nina and Jamie are doing groundbreaking work on the long and frustrating journey to create truly equal opportunities for women. And today, the Center for Presidential Transition is releasing a list of senior government positions which have never been held by a woman. The list is long, it's surprising, and it creates huge opportunities for positive change. Nina is the co-founder of the Leadership Council for Women in National Security, and Jamie is a member of LC Wynn's Steering Committee. LC Wynn seeks to achieve gender equity and national security positions across the government. And the national security sector is far behind other sectors of the government in terms of gender diversity, and even more so for women of color. We're delighted to have you here today. Thanks for joining and look forward to this conversation. My pleasure. So before getting started, Nina, you're deputy mayor of LA. There's an outbreak of COVID in throughout California, maybe you could give listeners an update on what's happening with the COVID situation in Los Angeles. Sure. Well, despite being the first big city to set up a massive testing program, we test even asymptomatic people now for free. We're doing about 20,000 tests a day. That's just just the city, you know, not counting uh, private providers. And despite being the first to require face coverings back in April, and despite having flattened the curve once, we are now again in a very dangerous situation where our cases and our hospitalizations are rising. Our positivity rate is a lot lower than some places like Houston and Miami, and our seven-day average of deaths is decreasing, but we're still tragically losing Angelinos every day to this horrible disease. I do want to note that we saw early on a racial disparity in terms of who was getting sick and who was dying. And so we did, we surged testing to the Black community and saw results so that now the percent of total cases matches closely the percent of population. So right now, the governor recently you know, ordered the closure of indoor dining, gyms, nail salons, hair salons, and so on. And we're we're waiting this week to see whether those measures, plus you know, encouraging again mask wearing and distancing, are going to be enough to to bring the curve back down. Well, Mayor Garcetti's been a great mayor and done a great job on this and been very aggressive. So I wish you 
the best of luck for the city. Let's move to the subject of your work, which is the Leadership Council for Women in National Security. So Ambassador, why did you establish this group? Well, I think when I became an ambassador was when I really realized uh, that we had a big diversity problem in foreign policy. And when I got the nice uh, call to come work for the city of LA and for Mayor Garcetti, I had been continuing that work with women ambassadors and starting to talk to some friends in Washington, uh, D.C. I was a co-author on the Me Too National Security uh, letter, um, which we had a lot of folks sign on to. And basically, we found that we were all experiencing you know, similar challenges, seeing the same lack of women in senior leadership and decided that we ought to do something about it. So we spent a couple of years to get it off the ground. So what I, what I propose to do is talk a little about your personal experiences, because we spoke earlier this week and there's some incredible stories, which I think many women have felt in many different professions, including in this space. And then let's move to what to do about it. So let's start with you, Jamie. So you are a Republican female national security expert, which is not a very common trifecta of skills or characteristics. So how did you get into this space? And you mentioned earlier this week that, you know, you, for much of your career, have been the only female in the room. And talk to us about those experiences. Well, it all goes back to my family, and I think I would call it the family business. Both my parents been in public service. My dad retired from the Air Force. He was a defense attache. Uh, my mom retired from Defense Intelligence Agency. And so all I really knew grew growing up was that experience of, of service. And I thought, how honorable to serve your country. And that really inspired me on my path of public service and working on Capitol Hill and then at the Department of Defense. I was aware of it. I was aware I was the only woman in the room. Um, that carries with it a certain burden, right? You want to perform well because you're carrying the weight of all of the other women who, who want to be in the room and sh who should be in the room on your shoulders. Uh, and you want to perform well on their behalf. And then I start to think about how do I get more women in the room and at the table, right? So I've made it great. I'm aware of it. But how do I open the door for others? Um, and that speaks to my alma mater, James Madison University. Our informal motto is holding the door open. And that is really what drew me to Elsie Wins once you've gotten in the door and looking around the table and figuring out who else should be there, what other voices need to be represented. And I'm really proud to be a part of a group that is answering that call and getting more women around the table for critical national security and foreign policy issues. Let's go back to your strategies, because there are many listeners who will be young women that want to follow both of your careers. So let's say that you're in a room and you're surrounded by generals and admirals and members of Congress, and they're all men. And you spoke up. Did you feel like they looked at you kind of askance or with skepticism? And how did you deal with that in order to both fit in, but also make sure your voice was heard? My approach in those situations was to start with a little bit of self-talk, 
I am supposed to be here. There is a reason why I'm in this room. I have a role to play. I have expertise. I have experience. I have a perspective that needs to be shared. And that really helped. That kind of helped the mindset in not being intimidated, first of all. And then second of all, I wanted to expect the best of people. I expect that they were going to treat me as if I was supposed to be in the room. And I do feel very fortunate in you know, any number of occasions where I've had some of those opportunities and have, have been the only woman in the room. I've never really felt that I have been made to feel that way, right? That it was glaringly obvious or that I was treated differently because I was a woman. But I know that's not everyone's experience and I'm, I'm sensitive to that. So I think the first strategy, the first approach is have confidence that you are supposed to be there and there is a reason for you to be there and that your voice is needed. And that sets the, sets the you know, stage for, for success, in my opinion. Jamie, you, when we talked earlier this week, you said you have an advantage over many other women that people listening to the podcast can't figure out. But what is that advantage and how did that help you? Thanks for asking that. I am tall. Uh, I played basketball in college, about six feet tall or so, plus a few inches if I wear heels. And, you know, one of the things I learned playing college sports, playing college basketball, it was the idea of taking up space, right, to be present. And I'm willing to take, you know, any advantage that I can. And if my height happens to, you know, give me a sense of presence or taking up space in a situation, then I'm certainly willing to use that advantage. And I think about a time, one of my first times uh, taking a briefing and, and sitting at the table in the Secretary of Defense's conference room, and either the table was really high or the chairs were very low or both, I'm not sure. But there were a lot of people sitting at that table wearing a lot of stars who looked like they just didn't fit. And the table felt like it was made for me. And that's when I felt, you know what? I, I feel good. I'm supposed to be here. And I'm really grateful for that growth spurt, you know, back in seventh grade. <laughs> that's great. Great story. Right. And Nina, you mentioned when we spoke earlier this week that you, particularly when you were young, received the quote, daughter and granddaughter treatment. What did you mean by that? Well, like Jamie, I was also often the only woman and often also the youngest. So I felt like I had, you know, many times the least to contribute because I was the youngest and least experienced. And I just got, you know, a lot of comments that were, you know, often well-meaning, but definitely made me feel, you know, very kind of other. I didn't take particular offense, but looking back on it, I realized I was it, it was probably somewhat belittling. So the term daughter and granddaughter treatment, it's, it's kind of like a senior male saying, oh, that's, that's really cute and that's nice, but being dismissive to you, is that what you meant by that? Yeah. And just, you know, comments about my appearance or, you know, or just great surprise that actually, you know, I, it, it was a woman holding, you know, whatever role it was that I had. Um, and again, well-meaning and that, you know, I don't think anyone, you know, meant anything malicious by it. And like Jamie, I've been very lucky not to, not to have been the victim of, you know, real abuse or assault or anything. Uh, but many, many counterparts I know have. Um, and in this case, it was, it was mild, but still dismissive, I guess would be the right word. 
And if you were in those situations, what would you do? Like, how would you approach it to both reduce tension, but also stand up and stand your ground? So I do think it helps to be, to have some seniority and to be older because I don't feel like I get that treatment much anymore. But I would suggest to younger women that if they notice that it's happening in the moment to not, not just let it go and to, to make a point of it. it doesn't have to be in a, in a hostile way. It could be perhaps in a funny way, but I think men don't often realize what they're saying can be offensive. And so it's, it's partly just, you know, educating your, your colleagues to, to become allies. I could not agree more. I think that not only is it not just the responsibility of the woman in the room to to point that out or to correct the behavior, it is the responsibility of everyone in the room to build that culture um, of awareness and to point out behavior that is not appropriate and not productive or not welcome in the workplace. So when you look at the data, there have been women that have been groundbreakers, Madeleine Albright, Condoleezza Rice, obviously Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State. You know, my kids for many years thought that Secretaries of State had to be women because they were only women. But you also look at the data and there's been just anemic progress. So for example, there are three cabinet agencies that have never had a female lead them. You want to venture to guess what those are? Oh, I think we know what they are. <laughs> I know at least at least a couple of them. I know uh, Department of Defense for sure, uh, and uh, Department of Treasury, and um, Veterans Affairs. Veterans, good. Okay, so let's let's look at the data. So there have been a hundred and sixty secretaries of those three departments, if you include. Secretaries of War, which were the predecessor agencies for the Department of Defense. So 160 secretaries, never a female. At the Treasury Department, I think that Lael Brainard was the first female to serve at the level of undersecretary or above, and that was 2010, more than 230 years after the department was established. And I think Michelle Flournoy was the first female to serve as undersecretary or above at the Pentagon, another groundbreaker. So why is it taken so long for women to break through in these positions? I think there's a lot of reasons. Studies have shown that we all have implicit bias. Men and women have implicit bias toward women. You've had great studies that you know give the same exact resume with Jane Doe or John Doe, and the the John Doe resume is 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 you know graded higher. In some agencies, there's pipeline problems where there're just not that many women coming in. That's not true in in the state department. I don't think it's true in in all the intelligence agencies. I think it probably is true in well I know it is true in, in the military. So in terms of getting to the top, you know, there can be, you know, instances of of sexual harassment, um assault in some cases, and then if not that serious, just lots of smaller slights that can add up, especially for women of color, that send the message that they, you know, they do not fit and they're not good enough. You know, it was in my lifetime until 1972 that women diplomats had to resign when they got married. So that kind of a 
you know, that, that kind of a culture lingers. And there's also, you know, that women do still the vast majority of the unpaid work of households, you know, taking care of uh, children or elders. Let's now turn to LC wins and what you're trying to do about it. So you have a pledge, which I guess Vice President Biden has signed. And what does that pledge say? It says that um, that the candidate who signs it will strive to achieve gender parity in their national security, in their senior national security appointments. And it, it wasn't just Biden, actually. It was, we had 19 or 20 candidates in total that signed it, both Democrats and um, Bill Weld on the Republican side. So you get candidates for office to sign this pledge. And then you also are collecting resumes and identifying women that are capable and qualified to serve in these roles, right? And then you put them forward to either the Trump administration or the Biden campaign, depending on who wins, right? Right. We are compiling a database of, of women who are qualified for the, the most senior Senate confirmed roles, being sure that we have uh, women of color uh, well represented. We're also putting together advice about how to hire diverse teams, some of the the tricks of the trade, holding a series of webinars for women who are interested um, to give to give advice about uh, the appointments process. So I want to go back to a point in 2012 when there was a presidential campaign between Mitt Romney and Barack Obama, and the issue of women in senior positions came up in a debate. Let's hear what Romney said. And I, and I went to my staff and I said, how come all the people for these jobs are, are all men? They said, well, these are the people that have the qualifications. And I said, well, gosh, can't we, can't we find some, some women that are also qualified? And, uh, and so we, we took a concerted effort to go out and find women who had backgrounds that could be qualified to become members of our cabinet. I went to a number of women's groups and said, can you help us find folks? And they brought us whole binders full of, uh, of women. So Romney was castigated for this comment. And when I was in the private sector, I worked on these issues. I was chairman of the board of a nonprofit that focused on diversity. And what Romney said in many ways is best practice, which is you send back resumes if there's no women candidates. You go to different groups and ask for their advice. And you basically put together resumes. So, you know, in hindsight, what's your view on what Romney said and why that was criticized and what was wrong with it? I think, you know, hindsight is always a, a fun place to look, right? Looking back, knowing what we know now today. Yes, it is a best practice, right? To identify gaps, to be intentional about finding a diverse slate of candidates, being deliberate about that process. Uh, and I have to give Romney credit for that. It, it sounds like that was the, the game plan in the process. You know, unfortunately, I think, you know, binders full of women became a, you know, quote that that everybody seemed to be using and throwing around. But at the end of the day, if we do not have candidates who are willing to fight for women and a diverse slate of of applicants to fill jobs, we've got a big problem. We're never going to get to the top jobs in a DOD or Treasury or the VA. So I think the work that Elsie Wins is doing to do the homework, to do the legwork, to cast a wide net, to encourage each other to get outside of our bubbles and identify other women who are doing great work and put their names forward, 
is a really important effort. Right. And Nina, so maybe his terms weren't artful, the term binders full of women, but isn't that what Elsie Wins is doing is creating binders full of women and sharing those with whomever wins as president? <laughs> yeah, I mean, essentially, we, uh, we're we doing it in a, in a slightly more technologically advanced manner. But, but yes, I think it was the phrase, I think it was also that he expressed surprise. I, I hear surprise in his voice that there would be so many qualified women. But that aside, I do, you know, I have to commend his efforts that he went to the, you know, the extra mile um, would have been easier for him just to hire, you know, the first slate that was given to him. And, and so, you know, he deserves a lot of credit for that. I admire him more and more as time goes on. <laughs> so one of the things that you've advocated, Nina, is this a belief based on data, diverse leadership teams create better outcomes. So what does the data show? It shows that diverse groups in leadership are more creative. Uh, they're more innovative. They're more likely to avoid groupthink. Women in Congress are judged to be as or more effective than their male colleagues, for example. And then in the private sector, we have all kinds of data that shows literally that firms are more profitable and that their turnover is less when there are women in management. But the point is that if you have different points of view to bring to bear on a problem, you're likely to get better results. And ultimately, that's what we're trying to do with this effort through LC Wins is to improve national security. It's a matter of fairness, sure, but really the, our, our first and major goal is to improve our foreign policy and national security. Right. One of the best practices is to identify and promote women for various positions, which you're doing. Another best practice is to promote and foster mentorship. Something I teach, I teach at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth, and I always encourage the students to find mentors in their careers. So, Jamie, did you have a mentor that really affected your career, and who was that, and how did you develop that relationship? I've been very lucky throughout my career to have a series of mentors, and as I've been thinking about this topic, I've noticed that many of them are men. Both Congressman Forbes and Congressman Whitman took chances on me when they hired me in that with Congressman Forbes, I didn't have any Capitol Hill experience, hadn't worked a, an issue portfolio that he was looking for and helped me grow into that role and had confidence in me and, and put me into situations where I would gain experience. And similarly, Congressman Whitman was elected in a special election and he wanted to get a team up and running really quickly. And so I made a lateral move from Congressman Forbes to Congressman Whitman's office and he in turn invested in me and gave me increasing levels of responsibility. And I think for me, that, that set, said a lot. I think mentors are very important because they're, and they're people that you can go to, to ask questions. Is this normal, right? How do I navigate this process? And they're also people to look up to. And I've had a number of those people um, help me in my career over time. And I think having that personal board of directors, right, full of mentors and sponsors um, for different points in your career is really important. Nina, let's, let's get your perspective. And I'll just give you a story, which was in my last semester teaching at Tuck. 
one of the most impressive young women, one of the most impressive students in my class asked to see me in office hours and said, you talked about mentorship. I have no idea how to develop a mentor relationship. I said, what do you mean? You went to a fancy Ivy League school. You worked on Wall Street. You're now in one of the top business schools. You've had, everything you've done has been a success. You know, you've never developed a mentor relationship. And she said, I wouldn't even know where to start. So what's your advice for young women in terms of how to develop mentors and mentorship relationships? That's so interesting, David, because I feel like in coming to see you in your office hours, <laughs> she, she's the son, you know, she could, she could be turning you into a mentor. I mean, I, I would just, you know, older people who've had some experience love to talk to younger people about their careers and really love to help. And so it really is just a matter of, you know, asking for some time to talk through, you know, your career, what you, what you're looking for in life and to ask advice. And then just to keep up those relationships, sometimes they can happen. And they most often happen with me, with people who I've worked for, who then I keep in touch with, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to be that it could, it could definitely be a, you know, a professor or others that, that, you know, that, that they come in contact with, but just in seeking you out and having that kind of personal conversation, like that's the first step. So let's talk about different parts of the government. So in your experiences, which parts of the government have done a good job at promoting women and creating more opportunities and which have not? Let's start with a positive. Capitol Hill is a great place for women, especially today, in that there are a number of congressional staff organizations that are dedicated to helping grow women professionally on the Hill. We didn't have those types of organizations when I first started. And so I'm really pleased to see those organizations forming and putting on professional development and personal development events. So I think a lot is going on in Congress as it relates to diversity and, and women's initiatives and a focus on hiring. My experience in the executive branch is limited to the Department of Defense. And I will tell you that um, the, the most senior women in the department made a very concerted effort to get to know the younger political appointees and, and staff members. I personally had a great group. Once a month, we would meet for breakfast all of us at the SES2 or SES3 level of women. And, and we would, that was our time. We would get together and talk about some of the challenges that we were facing. But those things were all led internally, right? We had to make those things happen. And so I haven't really seen a intentional and, and deliberate program firsthand at any of the you know, executive branch departments, agencies, but that doesn't mean that it hasn't happened. And, you know, the State Department, I think they've made some progress, but still is pretty far behind. And there have been very important ambassadorships, Israel, Germany, Russia, China, where there's never been a female ambassador. So what's your perspective on how the State Department's doing? Right. I, well, I do think they're trying. But, you know, as far as I can tell, that the number of women in senior management is still around hovers around 30%. So it's not it's not great. And in that case like I, I think I said earlier, there's no pipeline problem at at this at the Department of State. People, you know, the entering classes foreign service are pretty 
there is probably a pipeline problem when it comes to comes to race, but not for women. Um, and for women, it's 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 pretty fine at the entry level. It's just that they fall out of the system for a variety of reasons that we talked about earlier. So I do think they're trying, but you know we need to see need to see more more progress. And let's talk about this issue of falling out of the system. So John Brennan, when he was head of the CIA, did a diversity study, and he showed that there was pretty good gender parity on the entering classes of analysts, but 10 years in, the numbers were pretty anemic. And so in your experience, what is the cause of that dropout, Nina? Yeah. So I think there's a variety of reasons and it's different for, for different people. For some, you know, it could be a sense that they're not getting promoted. And so they feel like this is a dead end. And so might as well go on to something else. For some, they've, you know, encountered, you know, serious uh, problems of harassment or assault. For some, you know, it's just a series of being overlooked or not being heard or whatever. I think for some, you know, there's the, the problem of balancing care responsibilities. There's not, not good leave, you know, parental leave policies at all. So, you know, those, those are some of the potential factors. So we're spending a lot of time focused on the challenges for women in the national security space, but there's one other group where the progress has been even more anemic, and that's people of color. And so obviously people like Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice have made it, but there's just a dearth of opportunities for people of color in the national security space. So Nina, what's your observation about the problems for people of color in the national security space? And what should we do about that? Well, I agree with you. We have a we have a serious problem, and there have been a lot of personal accounts that have um, that have come out in in recent months uh, since the racial justice demonstrations have begun that are really harrowing um, and and yeah, just appalling. So, a couple things. Elsie wins from the beginning has made it a a real value to make sure that we are. Um, promoting women in all their diversity, and we work with different groups to do that. We made sh- we've made sure that we're recruiting black women and other women of color to our steering committee, and are using metrics to see how we're doing. And we we have a ways to go in some categories. I would also say that there's really a pipeline problem when it comes to. Uh, people of color, that they're just not represented um, as they should be at the entry level, let alone, you know, further up. Uh, In my job as deputy mayor, we are starting a variety of programs that we hope will help that and help, you know, inform the students of color in Los Angeles about careers in international affairs. So that kind of effort can help. And I, and I think that you know, all these agencies and, and departments just need to, you know, get out of their their comfort zone of where they like to recruit from and start recruiting from, from you know, beyond the Ivies, for example, uh, at other universities where they'll, they will find fantastic people and will, you know, be able to find more people of color at the entry level, which will help. Right. But it'll take a long time if you're starting at the entry level. It's, it takes years and years and years to build that pipeline. 
Yeah, it will. I mean, in the meantime, I would, of course, say that, you know, for that all slates for promotions should be diverse and they should be diverse, not just in terms of gender, but in terms of uh, race and ethnicity and uh, sexual orientation and religion and in every other way. Your boss, Mira Garcetti, took an interesting approach, which was to create something called a chief equity officer of the city to advance racial diversity and inclusion for the city. That is a relatively new position within the last, I want to say, two months. And it is, you know, has grown out of the, the demonstrations for racial justice but was modeled on a gender equity program that we started many years ago in the city where every department had to appoint a gender equity officer. So there's dozens of departments in the city and each department had to come up with a plan for how they were going to use a gender lens to, to to their work. And then they had to come up with goals and then metrics. And each quarter they are evaluated in terms of how they're going to, how they're doing and meeting those yearly goals. And at the end of the year, when, when the managers of those departments are reviewed on how their, on their performance, their gender equity progress and, and now we are going to add to that racial equity progress is part of what goes into that review, which is what determines their compensation. It's a system with metrics and measurements and goals and incentives built into it. And it's had a really tremendous effect in the city. When I was in the private sector, we always used to say that what you measure is what gets done because people respond to measurements. So Metrics is is a good strategy, so I hope that I hope that works well. Let's go to the transition. So we have an election. We have about a hundred days. So let's say that the Biden team came to you and said, "Okay, Elsie wins. What should we be doing to advance the agenda that Elsie wins has? And how would you advise us? What would you say they should be doing?" I'd say that they would want to ensure that the current staffing that they have is diverse. They should familiarize themselves with some of the tips for diverse hiring, like ensuring that the slates that they choose from are diverse, not too rigid in terms of people taking time out of the workforce, for example, to to care for kids. And, and there's a number of other ones. But I'd say most important that they should send a message that this is a priority I think Vice President Biden has already done that to a degree by taking the pledge and then speaking about it publicly and saying that he's going to choose a woman to be his vice presidential running mate. But I think that that messaging from the from the top is really important. And let's go to the Trump administration. Let's say the President Trump is reelected. So, Jamie, what would you advise the Trump White House to do if they get reelected? Call Elsie Wentz. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, I mean, I think similar things apply. And and the reason I say that is that it's about being intentional, right? It's about taking a look at the landscape, looking at you know the team that's on the field, the team that's on the bench, and figuring out where there are gaps in expertise. Deliberately building a diverse 
slate of candidates for all of those those positions. And so I think the work is 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 similar. It you have to be focused and intentional about it. And I think Elsie Wins is we're here. We are here to do do that work and want to do that work to serve up great candidates for national security positions. I had one other question for you, Jamie, which was one of your specialties at the Pentagon was helping nominees get confirmed by the United States Senate, which can be a very, very difficult process. So one not only needs to get the nomination, but they need to get through the Senate. And so you prepared over 50 nominees for that process. So if you were supporting a female candidate for a presidentially appointed Senate-confirmed position, you know, how did you approach their prep? Sure. Thank you for asking that question. For us, uh, for me, a nominee was a nominee was a nominee. And the end goal was to get a vote in the Senate and for that nominee to be approved, be confirmed. And I, we did work with number of women at the Department of Defense. And my advice to them is, to the women is the same as to the, to the men. And that really comes down to the process and the many, many people who want to be involved in the process. So my advice for, for potential nominees and for nominees is to really understand who is on your team who will be working with you through the process? Maybe it's somebody already at the department or the agency where you will be working and ensuring you have a trusting relationship with them and realizing that a lot of people are going to have opinions. A lot of people are going to have information. A lot of people are going to be talking to the Hill and they're going to want to pass that information back to you. But at the end of the day, uh, it's the Senate Armed Services Committee and it's the United States Senate leadership who decides which nominations advance and under what circumstances. It's a very stressful process. It is very daunting. We tell, would tell our nominees, you know, let's get through one hur- over one hurdle at a time. We need to take this one step at a time. Here's what we need to do to get to that next step. And I think whether you're, you know, no matter who the nominee is, explaining to them that Unfortunately, this is a situation where a lot of things are outside of your control. And that is really hard uh, to not be in control of a process that impacts you. Um, And one that really you have to lay yourself bare financially, right? Previous positions that you've held, all these kinds of things then become go out into the public space. And so being prepared for that, that feeling of being under the microscope, that's also something that we really worked with our candidates on. And to help manage expectations, because as much as we would like to bend the Senate to our will, that's just not how it works. Let me close with a final question going back to Nina's focus on metrics. So let's say that there's an election in November. We will have either a new president or a reelected president. And let's say that in two years, you look back at the metrics. How will you define success for Elsie Wins? I think it will be the percent of women in the senior most national security positions. Uh, that that's that's been our you know our our benchmark. And I should just note we have a lot of partners in this that are working on other kinds of diversity. We have out in national security is one, and WCAPS is uh, we're close. We work with them closely on women of color. 
and uh, and out focus on the LGBTQ community. Right, exactly. And uh, Nats at Girl Squad, also a partner. So, uh, and there's others that I haven't mentioned. So we we we're not doing this alone. We are we are working together with as many other like-minded groups as as we can find. Ambassador Nina Hachigian and Jamie Jones Miller, thank you for your time. Thank you for your important work on this initiative and thank you for your service to our country. Thank you. Thank you. If you like Transition Lab, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast apps.